Greg Berhalter is not a sexy choice, but Berhalter has the job, and he steps into a team and a culture that right now is adrift, cynical, and frustrated. When it comes to how this team plays, I'll settle for the best version of ourselves, or at least a better version. However he goes about it, Berhalter's challenge is restoring faith in this team and making us believe again. Hello, sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking about the new era of Greg Berhalter as our U.S. Men's National Team coach. We'll have our Mossy Makes the Case segment. We'll be answering your questions in our hashtag Ask Alexi segment and so much more. But first, as always, joining me, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. How are you this morning, Mr. Mossy? Mossy. Well, uh, as you can hear, David Mossy is not with us today. He is taken a little leave of absence. Uh, and when I say that in, in, in no negative way, he's off in Europe gallivanting around, having a wonderful time watching soccer. It's an excused absence. But what it means is that I'm, I'm working solo here, all right? This is a, a false nine type of situation. I like to have Mossy uh, for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that he's an incredibly valuable and smart person to bounce things off of. You will not get any, any of that. So if you had a problem or didn't like me before, I don't know why you're listening, but if, if that was the case, you're only going to get an even bigger dose of me today. I will try to make it uh, succinct and entertaining as always but know that I will not have David Mossy to bounce things off of. However, because he is an incredible pro, he has managed this week to record a Mossy Makes the Case segment. Uh, So we have it in the can. We will play it in that uh, that segment, and I will react to it, but it obviously will not be a back and forth. He will be back again next week as we head into the uh, holidays, and we will hear all about his travels uh, to Europe uh, in terms of seeing the games and seeing the sights. All right. Since I can't ask Mossy if he's ready to light this candle, I'm assuming that wherever he is, whatever pub he is currently uh, drinking at, that he would say, yep. So, as always, we start the pod off with... Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union, where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective. And it goes a little something like this. New U.S. men's national team coach Greg Berhalter spent this past week doing press and talking about his plan, his philosophy, and his challenge. Many have questioned the process that resulted in his hiring, which is fair, but I wonder if they would have complained had the process resulted in a coach named, say, Martino or Lepetegui. Because Greg Berhalter is not a big name. He does not have a glitzy resume. He is not a larger-than-life personality. In short, Greg Berhalter is not a sexy choice. In that sense, he is the anti-Jurgen Klinsmann. But Berhalter has the job, and he steps into a team and a culture that right now is adrift, cynical, and frustrated. For the men, the chant of, I believe that we will win, seems now to come with a question mark attached. There'll be talk of evolution and progression in the style of the play of the U.S. men's national team. But ultimately, like all coaches, Berhalter will live and die by the results. Yes, the bar's pretty low. Qualify for the World Cup, and it'll already do what the last team couldn't. But qualifying for a World Cup is still simply an expectation, not an achievement. In listening to Burhalter, you hear hints of a romantic and a desire to play what he sees as beautiful soccer. But when it comes to how this team plays, 
I'll settle for the best version of ourselves, or at least a better version. I believe there's beauty in that. However he goes about it, Berhalter's challenge is restoring faith in this team and making us believe again. Our nation turns its lonely eyes to you, Greg Berhalter. You may not be the coach we want, but you may be the coach we need. All right, so as we mentioned, my good friend David Mossy is not with us this week, and so you're just going to hear me respond to my own <laughs> State of the Union and really just expound on it because I had a really interesting week. Uh, I spent the first half of the week in New York doing promotion for MLS Cup, which also coincided with the announcement for the men's national team, the official announcement because it had already been announced, but the official unveiling of Greg Berhalter. And uh, we were able to go to it, and I say we because myself and John Strong and Stu Holden, we were all working uh, in New York doing promotional uh, appearances all over the place for MLS Cup. So this was held downtown in the Meatpacking District in a very beautiful uh, spot and space in one of the art galleries, how many floors up. And all the people that you associated with, uh, with, with U.S. soccer were there in terms of the media, your, your Grant Walls and your Tenorios and, uh, uh, and uh, Stephen Goffs and these types of uh, folks were there with their arms folded looking and uh, wanting to know what was going to be said by the three people that ended up being up on stage, which was obviously Greg Berhalter for the announcement, but also Ernie Stewart, the recently appointed general manager of the U.S. men's national team, a created recently created position, and Carlos Codero, the new president of U.S. soccer. And each in their own way had their moment and were interesting in the things uh, that they said. Uh, I'll first touch on Carlos Codero, who started off the proceedings and what do you think he's going to do? He's going to say, we've been through a long process, quote unquote process, and extol the virtues of that process and say how proud he is of the people that went through the process, which would be sitting to his left would be Ernie Stewart and Greg Berhalter. He used a term that really caught my attention uh, in, in a positive way. And he talked about Greg Berhalter's style in that he believed and wanted it to be uniquely and fiercely American. And I, I latched on to that because, to be quite honest, I was jealous. I wish I had written it, and I will be stealing it going forward because I think it, it doesn't directly explain what we want to do, but I just think it's a, a very nice, in, it's nice in the way that it is worded because there is a, a sentiment out there that every national team should be representative of their country and culture. And ours is no different other than the fact that our country and culture is so different than any others out there, and in a good way, and it's what makes us strong. There were certain people that didn't like that, and in today's age of instant analysis and instant outrage and got you type of reaction from anybody and everybody because everybody now has a megaphone and a platform, including the person that you're listening to right now. People jumped on over it and said, uh, you know, what's this? I liked it because I do think that going forward, we need to have a way to tap into what we want to be. With the full recognition, and in all honesty, it's never going to be what everybody wants. And that's why in previous episodes you, you hear me talk about this, this futile attempt to please everybody. So that was the, the, the first thing in terms of Carlos Codero talking. Uh, then Ernie Stewart talked, and it, it, is, it is becoming... Well, it was apparent, but I think it's becoming more and more apparent that I don't think Ernie Stewart particularly cares for uh, or has much, I don't want to say he doesn't have respect, but I don't think he cares for uh, press. 
and uh, being in front of people that are asking him questions about <laughs> everything from what's he doing to what the hell is your job. Uh, and I, I get that, and I'm sure he has bur been burned at different times, but at a time when the Federation needs to be, I believe, uh, as open as possible and as communicative as possible, that does not necessarily bode well for the future for a, for a, a, a person and a position that I think is going to be crucial. Because Ernie Stewart, yes, he is there to facilitate and help. In this case, now it's Greg Berhalter, whoever the head coach is there. He's also there, I think, to push the, the United States men's national team in a direction that he sees fit. He's not there to please me. He's not there to please everybody. But I do think that you need somebody in that position who is not only willing, but able and confident about expressing and articulating what the national team is going to be, both in the micro and macro sense. So Ernie Stewart uh, did, uh, did his thing, and he was asked about the process. They reiterated all the talking points that they had gotten out there about, started at 33, it went to 11, you know, a little vague about what exactly was an interview, what was an interview. And, and as I said in my State of the Union, the people that, that are going to harp on the process, I think it's much more about the choice ultimately. But people are still going to harp on the process, and you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's people out there that would have reacted exactly the same way, regardless of who ultimately had decided at the at the end of this. So you're always going to want your guy interviewed, and why wasn't this guy interviewed? And that's that's certainly fair in this day and age to ask those questions. But there's probably a whole lot more that goes on behind the scenes, and unfortunately, because they are a little reticent to get all of that out, we're not going to know that going forward. So what are we left with? We're left with Greg Berhalter as the coach, who I mentioned is in no way a sexy choice. I thought Greg Berhalter, from a PR standpoint, did a very good job, not just in that setting in, the, in his initial press conference, but throughout the week being made available and doing the rounds. And he probably got sick and tired of me asking the same or answering the same questions. We had him on uh, in our pregame for, uh, for M MLS Cup. And I think what was, what was interesting to see the response from uh, publicly was when he started talking about how the team wanted to play, they weren't always platitudes. It was at times much more articulate and detailed in the way that he played. And I, I even asked him a question at the press conference. It was the last question. And I asked him specifically, tell me how you're going to play. And he went into detail. And you can find that and we'll, we'll, we'll post that because it's, it's a little too long to play here. But ultimately, he thinks about and has thought about how this team wants to play. I don't think that, he isn't, uh, that he's idealistic and therefore is clouded by that idealism. I also don't think that he is a romantic in the sense that he is going to lack the ability to be flexible or to be at times pragmatic when faced with a team that is better. However, you know, he went out, he went so far as to lay out, even in his introductory press conference, how when our goalkeeper gets the ball, we are going to face pressure and we are going to try to play out of that pressure. That's, that's kind of, you, you think it's simple, but it's not, especially in that type of setting, to lay out specifically how we are going to do it. Now, it's all fine and well to talk about it. That's another thing to do it. Does Greg Berhalter have the players that will enable him to play in the way that he wants to play? Does he think he has it? And then we're going to come to find out, and he will come to find out that you don't and therefore has to adjust. Or does he believe that we have the players, we just haven't put them in the positions to be able to play like this? That, you know, that remains to be, uh, to be seen. Greg Berhalter, from a PR perspective, he is not an engrossing interview. 
He got better and better, and I think he is going to get better and better because, let's be honest, he hasn't been in this type of spotlight in the past as a player or as a person. He is very selective in the words that he chooses, and therefore he can at times appear guarded. That's not the worst thing in the world. I mean, we've gone through a, a, a Bob Bradley era, so this is nothing new when I say we, uh, we in the press. And so we, we can deal with that and we can chip away with it and get, get to the good stuff. I think we'll, we'll have a, a quicker path to that good stuff going forward. But he is in charge, as he said, with not only changing the fortunes when it comes to the results, but changing the way that we look at this team. And I asked him, again, actually on our set for MLS Cup, I asked him, because this notion that, there, that the responsibility and the pride and the honor of representing the U.S. men's national team has somehow gone or, or at least dissipated, how he goes about changing that. And, you know, he's talked about culture and he's talked about how possibly, and this was a hint that maybe he might bring in some quote-unquote veterans to kind of say, hey, this is what it is. The problem with that is that those veterans, it happened on their watch, the biggest failure in U.S. men's soccer history, and I would argue the biggest failure in U.S. soccer history, period. And so sometimes that message gets lost when it's being given from folks that were part of uh, a complete fiasco and debacle in the same way that after 1998, had you put me in front of the team and say, hey, this is how we do it, they would say, yeah, you finished last in the World Cup and you imploded uh, from, a, from a team perspective. But that's up to Greg Berhalter to figure out. Uh, it's going to come fast and furious for Greg Berhalter now. So he's going to stop doing interviews. He's off in Europe meeting with the players, as he should. Uh, he's got this January camp that we know is still of value, but it's kind of a half camp because you're not going to get everybody that you want because the European players aren't necessarily going to be uh, be a part of it. And really, I think where he's going to be judged first and foremost is next summer at the Gold Cup, which, by the way, you can see on Fox because we are televising it. We've got a big summer of uh, of soccer coming up on, uh, on Fox. That's where he's really going to be judged because it's in a a competitive setting. It's in a tournament setting that we know ultimately his judgment will come in a in a tournament setting in, a, in qualifying and then playing in a World Cup. So we'll see how this team looks going forward. We'll see how he talks about this team and as I said, how he articulates how they're going to play, how that lives up. Because when Jurgen Klinsmann was at the helm, he often talked about being progressive in the way that we play. And, you know, my my thoughts at that time was, well, that's I can appreciate that and I can respect that, but if you don't see it on the field, then I think it's fair and right to point it out. In the same way that if there is not that style that Greg Berhalter has talked about, then it's fair to point it out. And maybe it's fair here to say, you know what? I thought I could do one thing and I've adjusted. That, that's, that's fair too. Uh, that's not necessarily something that Jurgen Klinsmann did, uh, but we'll see if Greg Berhalter, one, has to adjust, two, if he adjusts, what it becomes. When I say a, the best version of ourselves or a better version of ourselves, that's where, and I know I sometimes tell you I'm a romantic. I am a romantic when it comes to life. When it comes to soccer, at times I'm less so in that I want there to be a pragmatism and an understanding and a realistic approach as to how we are going to get results. Because I've never seen anybody from an American soccer perspective complain about the U.S. men's national team when they win, when they get a result, and base it off of the fact that the way that they played. Oh, yeah, we won, but we were horrible or we were too direct. And by the way, when people say we were horrible, the, the, the majority of people associate that with being direct. I find beauty at times in a direct play. Uh, you can look no further than, I don't know, 
counterattack that happened in Copa Libertadores this weekend with a wonderful outlet ball and stuff like that. There's different versions of it, different layers like that. But the way that the United States national team has evolved and progressed has at times been, yes, a, I'll say bunker, because that once again, while I can look at it as something that can be beautiful, immediately say bunker, and people look at it with a negative connotation. And at times it, it is, because it's not as easy to, it's not, it's not candy. <laughs> it's more of a spinach. It can be good for you, but not as many people like it. So how they go about doing it, I think, is going to be interesting. And the the best elements of a U.S. men's national team pass, that ability to counter, that ability you know, that, that's not an X's and O's thing, but an ability to be and, and grasp onto that underdog role. And by the way, this doesn't mean that you don't pass the ball. This doesn't mean that it's regressive, caveman, Neanderthal type of, of play or what you associate with that. But it does mean being realistic with what we have. One thing that I hope to see is from a physical perspective, which is something that we always talk about, so much so that at times people get irritated when you talk about the physical nature of the U.S. men's national team and the physical nature of the U.S. player. I, I hope we augment that. I hope that we continue to build on trying to dominate teams from a physical perspective, whether it's brute force, whether it's speed, whether it's team speed, whether it's ability in the air, all of that kind of stuff is important. And at times, I don't think in the past we've measured up, literally measured up. You know, you talk about some of the best teams in the world, and when you stand next to them, you're in the tunnel and you're watching them come out. You know, these are not just incredibly gifted technical players, but also physically imposing. And, you know, for, for every Messi or whatever, there are plenty of players out there that you say, gosh, this is a great player because he's technically a bit. I mean, Casemiro or somebody like that. People don't realize the dominance, the physical dominance that some of these players can put on a game. And I think that in our effort to progress, in our effort to evolve, we have put so much focus and energy on the technical side, which is, which is good, that we have, the balance has gone away with making sure that we have the physical side. And when you get that perfect match, you have the ultimate player. Because, you know, Messi is an outlier. And it doesn't mean that that, he, that that type of player can't have a place. But going forward, I do hope that the national team recognizes that the physical part of a game can be something that we can exploit, something that doesn't take as long to develop. And I hope that Greg Berhalter finds a way to do that. Ultimately, as I said, Greg Berhalter is going to be judged by his wins and losses. We are going to judge him, and I say we, we in the media, because that's what we do. I will at times be critical, and I, at times I will criticize Greg Berhalter. I told him that the other day. I'm not telling him anything he doesn't know. And to his credit, he recognizes that. And I think maybe even welcomes that and proving people wrong, especially a lot of people that aren't happy with this hire for whatever reason, whether it's because he's, you know, he hasn't had the greatest uh, success when it comes to the, the club, uh, his club uh, history and his club resume, or he's just not sexy, or they wanted somebody else ultimately that uh, they wanted in uh, in that position. So we will be looking and we will be watching, and at times we will be critical. But ultimately, as a human being and as a human being who has represented the country and knows the honor and the responsibility and the privilege of representing my country on the field, I want Greg Berhalter to do well. We all want well. 
if you don't want Greg Berhalter to do well, then you got a problem, okay? And you need to, it's, it's probably a problem that extends well beyond soccer, so you, you might want to see somebody about that. You want Greg Berhalter to do, to do well because it means the national team is doing well and ultimately it means that soccer is doing well. And I'll end it with this. As coming off of this weekend, and we're going to talk more about MLS Cup later on, which is a high, which is a feel-good moment for not just Major League Soccer, but for soccer in the United States. We still find ourselves, as we get into this holiday period, from a soccer perspective, and as it relates to the men's national team, in the lowest point that I can remember in the years that I have been alive. And that's not a good place to be. And Greg Berhalter, you have the opportunity to bring us uh, to bring us out of that. How you do it is up to you, and there will be people that agree and disagree, but results go a long way, and those results start happening starting in January with games, which you can see because uh, we are going to be televising some of those, and we will have our magnifying glasses out in everything that happens on the field and everything that Greg Berhalter says off the field. But as far as what he has said off the field so far, I would give him a solid B plus A minus in terms of the rollout and the PR perspective, which was uh, which was something interesting to see, not just that press conference in New York, but as he went through the week and talked to anybody and, and everybody as he should to try to to sell himself is really what he's doing. And through that, sell what he believes is going to ultimately make us believe again. All right, moving on. Hello, people. It's Alexi Lalas. More of the State of the Union podcast is on the way. But first, I wanted to tell you about a service every soccer fan needs to check out. Fox Soccer Match Pass. With Fox Soccer Match Pass, you can stream live and on-demand matches from the Bundesliga, international friendlies, and more. All on your favorite devices. And the best part? It's all ad-free, and you can cancel at any time. So check out foxsoccermatchpass.com and get started with a seven-day free trial today. Now back to the show. Mossy Makes the Case. Yes, it's time for Mossy Makes the Case. As I said, Mossy is not in studio this week, but the professional that he is, he has recorded this week's Mossy Makes the Case for us to listen to right now. All right, Mossy, what do you have to say? My case is that FIFA have become victims of their own success when it comes to VAR. Last week, UEFA announced they are moving up the timeline. VAR will be introduced in the knockout stages of this season's Champions League. And that announcement came on the heels of Premier League clubs signing off on VAR for next season. So this debate is effectively over, and it represents a massive victory for FIFA president Johnny Infantino, who has always been a big proponent of VAR. However, six months out, FIFA has yet to announce whether VAR will be used at the Women's World Cup. Now, as FIFA women's issues go, this one is a bit complicated. FIFA very much want women to referee the Women's World Cup. They just announced a list of 27 referees and 48 assistant referees for next summer, all of them women. But since none of the top women's leagues in the world use VAR, none of these women have any experience with it, and FIFA are leery of having their first exposure to it in a real game be at the World Cup. Let's remember all the issues we had on the men's side in the beginning. It took a while for everybody to get the hang of it. Starting this month, FIFA are going to train these women referees on 
VAR, and they're hoping to make a determination in March. But they have said if you really want VAR, it might mean swapping out some of these women referees for men. Now, the top women's players and managers around the world are very unimpressed by this explanation. They feel like this is yet another example of FIFA being caught flat-footed when it comes to the women's game and that they should have thought of all this a long time ago. So this has become part of this larger conversation about sexism and gender inequality in the game. Whatever you think of all that, the bottom line is if you're Johnny Infantino, you can't hold press conferences after the Men's World Cup, revel in the success of VAR, and say that from this point forward, you can't imagine a World Cup without it, and then not have it 12 months later at your next World Cup. So he has to figure something out here because we need VAR in France next summer. Okay, interesting case from David Mossy regarding VAR and how it relates to the women's game and in particular the Women's World Cup uh, this summer, which uh, we will be at and we will bring you on Fox. Uh, Looking forward to that. As far as Johnny Infantino standing up there, Mossy said he can't stand up there and, and make these proclamations after the Men's World Cup if you're not going to also have it for the Women's Cup. Uh, unfortunately, we live in a time where he can uh, and he and he does. I was really interested to hear Jill Ellis, and we talked uh, in the last segment about romantics and idealists and and uh, and that sort of person and coach. Uh, Jill Ellis, I think, was really smart in the way she said, look, I want the best people there. And right now, the reality is that uh, that not enough women have been trained in order to accommodate uh, all women working referees uh, and VAR referees in the summer. And so Jill Ellis said, look, if it's if it's the men that are trained, then fine, because she's looking at it. And yes, she's looking at it from a soccer perspective, saying, I want that because my team could ultimately benefit that. Uh, notwithstanding that a couple of years ago, Julie Ertz, actually at that point she was Julie Johnson, would have been ejected from a game, would have gotten a red card um, had VAR been around. But that's you know that's neither here nor there. She wants it in the game, and we all want it in the game. And she recognizes the reality of the situation right now. Does it make the decision or and the decisions that have made over the last couple of years any better? No. And absolutely, FIFA should be called out because what they should have done is when they trained the men, which they did for the Men's World Cup, they should have included the women with an understanding and a recognition that the Women's World Cup is coming in 2019. Uh, I'm not sure that everybody that works at FIFA even knows that the Women's Cup is coming in 2019, and that's uh, a a sad thing to say right now. Uh, But it's the reality of the situation. I think Jill Ellis uh, has recognized that because you got six months right now. Are, Are you going to train enough? Because the last thing that you want to do is force something through and speed this up, and in your effort to do something which we all recognize is good, you end up hurting a Women's World Cup by not having qualified people there. Because say what you will about VAR, but I think everybody can recognize that the way that VAR was implemented, which is why everybody's talking about it, was so positive and so flawless in the 2018 Men's World Cup in Russia that everybody said, this is great. We all need this. And that's why everybody is screaming and yelling, as they should. Men, women, anybody is, is, that is involved in soccer wants, wants VAR. The financial aspect of it is irrelevant as far as I'm concerned because, because you, uh, you are FIFA. Ultimately, how is this going to sh- shake out? I believe that VAR will be, uh, will be had this summer in the Women's World Cup, as it should have been all along. I do believe that, as Jill Ellis has suggested, they will ultimately get the human beings, which in this case happened to be male, because of the, the, the misguided decisions that were made in the past, 
they will get the, the male referees involved so that these games have VAR, but ultimately the VARs are male as opposed to female. And then uh, you go on. The victims of their success, yeah, they are, but this is... And the amount of criticism that FIFA or Johnny Infantino is going to get for this, and you talk about being being real, is going to be minimal. And that's why it's not going to light the fire that we would want it to, to light. And while we as a country and culture take our women's soccer much more seriously than pretty much anybody out there, the, the, the sad truth is the rest of the world and a lot of the rest of the world not only doesn't take it seriously, but in many cases uh, doesn't care. And this is the constant fight uh, and the struggle. I, to this day, as I've said, said before, one of the proudest moments and one of the most fun and interesting times I've had was working the previous uh, World Cup, my first Women's World Cup in Canada. For what, for what I learned, for what I, was, what I was exposed to, and that's why I can't wait for yet another opportunity this summer uh, in France for the, uh, for the Women's World Cup to happen. I do think that it will have VAR. As I said, they'll, they'll say, oh, we should have done this. We should, they won't even say that. We all know what they, what they should have done. But you know, keep in mind that a couple, a couple uh, what was uh, the draw that was last week, which we'll, we'll talk about in a second, understand that the bracket and schedule that the Women's World Cup uh, that had been made and put out by FIFA was imbalanced. And if not for a reporter right before the draw bringing it to the attention of FIFA, it would have gone unnoticed. That would never, ever happen in the men's game. This is, once again, this is where FIFA is as in relation to the women's game and unfortunately where the world is. Has it gotten better? Yes. And I, re I recognize that those listening out there this is not me mansplaining this or anything like that. There are a lot of people out there and qualified men and women that know a whole lot more about the women's game than I do. And this is simply from my perspective, having been in the game, having seen the way FIFA works, they will talk about finances. They will talk about the reality of how much money is made here and how much money is made there. But this is a World Cup and FIFA... And I've looked through the game, uh, through all of their mandates, and I've looked through all of <laughs> everything that governs FIFA, is for the good of the soccer player, not for the good of the man, the, the men's soccer player, or the good of the women's soccer player. It's for the good of the soccer player. And soccer players are playing at the pinnacle this summer in a World Cup, and therefore it is incumbent on the governing body of FIFA to make sure that to the extent that you can, and I recognize uh, there are circumstances and, and different circumstances, but the extent that you can, in this instance, you can, to make it, I don't want to say equal, because we know that that's, that's a word that sometimes puts us down different ways. But when it comes to certainly something like VAR right now, this is, this is something that needs to happen, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because of the message that it sends. And I do believe that FIFA will recognize that this needs to be done. I think, do think it will, get, uh, it will get done. It won't be done in the ideal way that many of us want it to be, but it will be done. And it will make the World Cup better. And there will be more things that women players, uh, not just U.S. women's players, but women's players from all teams and people in the media will call out. 
and it's good. You need to call out hypocrisy and you need to call out inequality and you need to be able to back it up and you need to be able to have a discussion and a debate because there are some very, very smart people that work in soccer and work in women's soccer. And there are very, very smart people at FIFA. You know, I, I, it's easy to crap all over FIFA and they, they understand that. Uh, and there are very, very smart people that work in CONCACAF and the different, uh, the different federations that understand that this is a, a work in progress. And I think we all just want that progress to be faster and believe that if you have the people in decision-making positions making quicker and better decisions, that that progress can be faster. And this is one of those things where had some planning and some ability to see around the corner been implemented years ago, we wouldn't be faced with this situation right now. And unfortunately we are, and it's going to get resolved, I think in a positive way, but not in ultimately the way that it should have been, uh, should have been resolved. So well done Mossy and recording that VAR is, we live in a VAR world and it's a, it's, it's a better world, I believe. And it is the world that all leagues and certainly all tournaments at the highest level are going to, uh, going to be governed by. And that's a, that's a good thing. And you know, the financial aspect of it, yes, it is important. This is a World Cup. This is a World Cup. And you can spend the money to do it right so that when you say World Cup, hopefully we get to a point where you say World Cup and it's a World Cup. It just has human beings playing in it. And we'll talk about Men's World Cup and Women's World Cup and uh, the equality between how it is refereed is something that we don't even have to worry about talking about. All right, Mossy, thank you very much. Wherever you are, once again, you've probably moved on to another bar knowing you. Uh, be safe. Uh, have a wonderful time. And thank you for doing that ahead of time so we could talk about VAR and the impact and uh, on the Women's World Cup and on women's soccer and not just women's soccer, but all of the leagues and the uh, tournaments that uh, don't have it right now, but which, but which we all know eventually and sooner rather than later, will have it as part of uh, the game day experience. All right, moving on. Ask Alexi. Ask Alexi that time when uh, I answer your questions, comments, concerns with that hashtag Ask Alexi. Uh, Mossy's not here, so I'm going to read these questions and then answer them. Uh, and hopefully, uh, for those of you that haven't already gotten sick of my voice and turned this off, uh, this will be something that is, as always, entertaining and interesting. I hope. All right, here we go. Gypsy DRB, if that is your real name. Top three MLS players who haven't gotten a look by the U.S. men's national team but should in January camp. Ah, man, that's a hard one. I, I, I don't have players that haven't gotten a look, but I am really interested, having spent this last week in and around Greg Berhalter, how he decides to implement some players that have been or some players that been, have been in and out over the years. You know, for example, uh, and I know we're going to talk about uh, MLS Cup here in a little bit, uh, the play of someone like Michael Parkhurst. And I'm not saying Michael Parkhurst should be in it, but there was a lot of talk about seeing how well he played and why he hadn't been more involved in the past. And I know that's rehashing the past, but someone like Greg Garza, the left back for Atlanta United, and left back sometimes in name only, in that he is all over the place and up the field. And yes, he has been involved in the past with the national team, but considering that that hole that we have at left back, if, if you look at, DeAndre Yedlin in the right back position 
and the fact that in talking to Greg Berhalter this week, he specifically and publicly pointed to that as he did the uh, the striker position, the number 10 position, as areas that they need to find players. I would be interested to see if uh, Greg Garza gets a call in as a, as a left back to the January camp and finds a way to make it his own. There's going to be other people because that is a recognized position right now that uh, that is not good enough and needs to be filled. The other person, and this is someone that you mentioned this this guy's name, he, he splits the room, uh, Ajasi Zardes, who we know was basically brought out from oblivion by Greg Berhalter himself in Columbus. And one year ago, he was playing right back and had become a shell of his former self for the Los Angeles Galaxy, went to Columbus, scored a ridiculous amount of goals. And so does Greg Berhalter see that as somebody that not only should be brought in, but should should be given time? And this is where I was talking to someone the other day, I can't remember who it was. Greg Berhalter has to be careful because those affiliations and those those loves that he has for players, they can sometimes cloud your judgment. I'm not sure that this necessarily applies to someone like Jossie Zardes, but I will be interested to see if Jossie Zardes returns to the national team. Keep in mind, a few years ago, he was not only playing for the national team, he finished the year with the most minutes played of anybody with the national team. So he was a, a, a recognized uh, starter for the national team. Does he have a resurgence and is it because specifically of Greg Berhalter or given what happened this past year, is he just a guy that has scored goals that's American, that certainly has a history, and therefore it's appropriate to bring him in? Uh, and then the third one, and this is a guy who has been in and out, once again a goal scorer, who is, I guess, coming around this bend, a Jordan Morris, who now we hear is possibly signing a brand new big contract and yet has been out the last year with a knee injury. He was this this great hope that a lot of people had a dynamic player fast could get behind folks scored goals and yes he was a player uh, that came up in not just uh, american development but then into major league soccer if he's back what type of player is he and is he the same player better worse uh, coming off a major injury and missing a year and does he work his way back to a position where Greg Burhalter as the US men's national league coach says all right yeah this is something that i have to consider now i know i didn't gypsy i know i didn't necessarily point out individual players that haven't been involved but those are three players that i'll be interested to see what happens and since i'm not only is it my podcast and I have the microphone, but Mossy isn't here. I can do whatever the hell I want. So those are the three that I'm giving you. All right, number two, Mr. Fantastic. All right, Mr. Fantastic. Is it better to have soccer-specific stadiums or NFL-sized stadiums? Well, it's interesting that you that you ask this because I was screaming and yelling at folks over Twitter over the last couple of days about the experience down at MLS Cup. And I'll I'll talk about it more in the next segment, but it was so nice not to be cold. It was so nice not to be wet. It was so nice not to be uncomfortable in the covered stadium that was Atlanta. Was it nice not to have natural grass? No, but 70,000 people, it was very, very nice to be in that comfortable environment. And I, I got into this conversation uh, with different folks about, 
do you want a roof on your insert team uh, stadium? And it could be multiple different sports, not just not just soccer. Uh, when you have 70,000 people, I don't care if it's, if it's a football stadium or a, so- a soccer-specific stadium. And the reason why it's fun down in Atlanta is because it is, to a certain extent, a soccer-specific stadium in the way that they built it and the way that they brand it and the way that they run it from a soccer uh, game experience uh, perspective. So if you're comparing, is it better to have a 70,000-seat Mercedes-Benz stadium or a 20,000-seat soccer-specific stadium? In the case of Atlanta, yeah, it's better to have the stadium that was built for both of those teams is no more a NFL stadium than it is an MLS stadium and has an owner who today, and we're, we're recording this on Monday, while the parade is going on in Atlanta, said, I would think if you got him up in the middle of the night, Arthur Blank, and asked him which team is nearer and dearer to his heart, I'm going to think, and maybe it's off of the <laughs> off of the weekend winning an MLS Cup, but even from a business perspective, the way that that uh, juggernaut has raged on through the year, uh, I got to think that that's a good thing. Now, if it's a New England Revolution type of situation, that's a completely different type of conversation. But uh, as it relates to having a roof, I ask you, and you're listening, you're running, you're driving, you're doing whatever, would you want to have, if you could build, if, you're, if your new stadium was being built, regardless of how big, big or small it was, would you want a roof to be on your stadium? Take away the cost. And I know that's, that it is cost prohibitive and it's a big problem, but let's just take that away. Let's even take away the turf part of it. Just I'm saying, would you want a roof? Because I was talking to some folks, proud northerners, of which I am one, having grown up in Michigan. I was talking to some folks and saying this actual question, and they said, and they romanticized the whole aspect of sitting in the snow or sitting in the rain if you're Seattle or, or whatever. They say, no, this is who we are. This is about our culture. This is about our history. I think if you asked the Green Bay Packers fans or, in, or, or the Seattle Sounders fans, if you could build a new stadium, it's for you. Cost is, is irrelevant right now. With a roof or without a roof? You have to ask them anonymously because if they're with their friends, they'll be all hearty. Oh, it's, it's, this is what we love. And blah, blah, blah. No. I, I got to feel that they would say, no, let's put a roof on it. Because for every wonderful moment and game, and look, we've had them with soccer, the snow game uh, years ago in qualifying. No, that doesn't happen if there's a roof. But that's few and far between. And it's unique. And it's, and it's do you... You have all of the pain that you go through, and it is pain at times, just to have that one moment. I don't, I don't think so. I think people are saying it's a roof. And by the way, it only it doesn't just apply to rain and cold. When MLS teams or soccer teams in general are slogging it, slogging it out, either in an MLS season or, by the way, in a World Cup, when they're slogging it out in the middle of the summer, down in Houston, down in Orlando, you don't think that not just the, the, the paying customer would feel more comfortable with a roof and therefore a climate-controlled environment, but also the players, don't you think that the product would improve? Everyone talks about, oh, it's, it's fun to play in the rain. For a player, eh, it's fun to play in the rain. But if you are a technical player, it's not always fun to play in the rain. And the product on the field suffers, as it does when you're playing in the heat. So I know I've kind of veered off into a lot of different directions from your initial question, Mr. Fantastic. I think in general, 
yes, it's better to have soccer-specific stadiums than NFL stadiums for clubs. And that has been proven. I think the outlier is this Atlanta situation. If you can make that the norm, that's great. But we're going to continue on, and not everybody can sell 70,000 tickets in the way that uh, Atlanta does, which is why they are the MLS Super Club right now. All right, one more question here in our Ask Alexi segment. Underscore Quinny D10. It's not even, I don't even know what your name is there. Uh, you, didn't even, you didn't even make it like I could 10. I'm just going to call you 10. Is there anyone better than Mourinho to take Manchester United forward? So these are the, the suspects that will come out. Obviously, Zinedine Zidane, Pochettino, Conte, Allegre, Jardim, these types of names that will get thrown out right now. Uh, careful what you wish for. Uh, whoever that is is going to come in. I do think that if Manchester United sacked, fired, whatever you want to call it. No, it's fired, really. I mean, let's be honest. If they were to fire Mourinho right now, whoever would come in would do better. I think that it is a, both publicly and I, I, I guarantee you behind the scenes, it's, it's not good right now. And it's not just about the results, but yeah, it is about the way that this once great club has suffered this year and is playing, or in many instances, not playing. So I think that there's, are they better coaches? That's, that's a different type of question. Can they do better than Mourinho in December of 2018? Yes, there's plenty that can do better than Mourinho. And they might not even be better coaches, but they come into an environment where there is, re- if this team just sucked and, and everyone looked at it and said, there is no talent anywhere, that would, then, then you'd be a problem. But that's not what people say. What we're saying is there is talent. This team should be better. Should they be competing with Man City in terms of a talent? No, I think everybody recognizes that they're not on that level yet. But it's not for lack of money that's been spent. And the blame game about who spent it and who decided it is going to go on forever. And we'll never know exactly how it all works. But ultimately, there's been, they've spent plenty of money. They have plenty of talent. The whole history and culture, that's there, but we all know that that's only as good as the talent that you ultimately have. You can be incredibly historic and and have legacies and uh, the mythology of, of what you were in the past, and you're going to have to live up to it, but if you don't have the players, they do have players, and they shouldn't be in this position. And ultimately, you can't fire the players, you can fire the coach, and right now I do think that there are others that would come in. It doesn't... I just want to be clear, though, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are better coaches. It means that they are better, that we better coaches in this environment, in this moment. And with that, we finish up our Ask Alexi segment. As always, hit us up on uh, Twitter and Facebook and Periscope and all the different things out there and use that hashtag Ask Alexi. And uh, we will, uh, in future episodes, answer your questions. In those episodes, finally, Mossy will be back from his pub crawl across uh, Europe uh, and be able to actually ask these questions as opposed to me. All right, moving on. The Back Three. All right, it's time for our back three, some of the biggest stories, games, and moments from the previous week. What we're talking about this week, first and foremost, is MLS Cup. I told you I spent the week on the road. First half of it was in New York doing promo for MLS Cup, and then we transitioned over to Atlanta and the city and the soccer city that has become. And I can tell you right now, it warmed the cockles of my redheaded heart to be in that city. And the the stories that started to pour out of folks, and oftentimes we judge it on, back in the day, it would have been 
just taxis, but now we judge it on Uber and Lyft and stuff like that. And the stories of people getting into uh, taxis, Ubers, Lyfts, and having conversations with the drivers, and they are kind of the touchstone for a lot of people on the relevancy of anything in any city, and having conversations and arguments about the team and you know should Almiron go and Tata Martino and all these different things, that happened time and time again. Having been to Atlanta before, a lot of people, whether it's media or fans, it was their first time going to Atlanta. Having been to Atlanta before this season and seeing what it is, it was not a surprise to me, but it didn't make it any less uh, joyous of an occasion to be in this type of emerging soccer market. And a lot of things that I'll say about MLS Cup before we talk about the actual game, but watching this unique MLS market adjust and adapt in so many different ways, whether it's the media, whether it's the business, whether it's the political side of it and the politicians. It was so enjoyable to be in, and I wrote this on Twitter, the the exploding soccer market that is Atlanta and watching these traditional and entrenched type of entities, uh, like I said, media, business, politics, watching them scramble and adjust and adapt to this new reality. And and to see and and to see the smart ones evolve and add it to their palette and the smart ones to be quite honest have added it to the palette over their last couple of years not just they don't just do it on MLS Cup final weekend and then also to see others with this look on their face as this this game and this team and this brand has taken over everything that they held dear and thought was Atlanta. And that for them to dig in and cling to this past was wonderful. And it, it made me very, very happy. And then I started to think about, you know, who we are as the soccer people out there. And I'll talk a little bit more about it uh, later on, but it was fun to be in this environment and to, to see soccer being as relevant as anything, and in many cases, more relevant to uh, to a city. When it came to on the field, the team that everybody predicted to win won. The team that I predicted to win won because Atlanta is a better team. Was it a game that you put in a time capsule and say this is how the game should be played? Not necessarily, but Atlanta did what they needed to do in front of 70,000 folks. It was incredibly loud, as it always is. They they got their moments, the, the money shot with the confetti. By the way, you can never have too much confetti. And the train going on and the TIFO and the, the seven-year-old girl singing the national anthem. From an MLS perspective, it could not have gone any better. This is what they have wanted, other than you know maybe having... Portland, Seattle, or LA Galaxy and LAFC. This was one of those moments when uh, we interviewed Don Garber at, at halftime on our uh, on our Fox set, grinning from ear to ear because he knew this is something to savor and and should be celebrated, and not just celebrated by Atlanta, celebrated by everybody, including Portland. And I know that that sounds strange, but even. Even the Portland fans recognize that this is a good thing. And by the way, a lot of the stuff that we've seen in Atlanta, Portland take heart because you were able to foster a lot of that stuff and start a lot of that stuff. And I would never compare you to, but understand that you are a big reason why this league has survived and why this league has thought of markets and cities as being soccer markets. So hats off to you. On the field, ultimately, 
Joseph Martinez scores. That's what that's what he does. Tata Martino won the big one, which is something he hasn't done in the past. So congratulations to him. And now he's off to, by all accounts, El Tri and Miguel Almiron, by all accounts, over to uh, the EPL. This is going to look very, very different going forward, this Atlanta team, who has to now play in CONCACAF Champions League. And that is, as I said before, this uh, this race to the moon. And Atlanta, they're going to have to find a way to plant that Atlanta flag to continue this, uh, this relevancy. Now, we have not seen the Atlanta market when Atlanta United sucks. That will be interesting to see how they respond when the team isn't good on the field. Hopefully it's not for uh, a long time. I will end the the Atlanta MLS Cup stories with uh, with something here. So, <laughs> and this is off the field. We had our set. It was a beautiful set. It was actually the set that they use for Major League Baseball. It's this incredible contraption that goes up and down. The roof comes up and down. There's lights and all that kind of stuff. Myself, Marisa Du, and Rob Stone bringing to you pregame, halftime, and postgame. And we got done with our pregame, and we turned around to watch the game that, it, that, that was beginning behind us. And for those that don't know, the Super Bowl of the National Football League is going to be held in Atlanta come February. So they were in preparation mode. This was a rehearsal and a trial run. Everybody, security, dogs, all the, the, the personnel and staff and the protocol was in place. So much so, <laughs> we come to find out that the security comes over and says, we can't watch the game because we don't have the proper credentials. Uh, we had just done national television on Fox, Homer Fox, uh, Homer Simpson Fox. We turn around and they, they basically kicked us out. The game's playing and rather than make a big scene, we said, all right, what are we going to do? Well, we can walk back to our green room to watch it or what, what's going to happen? So we start walking past the suites that are behind uh, the end zone there. At the, at the stadium, and Rob Stone calls an audible. He says, screw this. We're going to find a place to watch this that's close. So he goes into the bank of suites, and each suite has a name on the outside, and most of them are different corporate sponsors. And we get to one where we look inside, and they look like reasonable people. And Rob Stone walks in ahead of everybody. And he's got his IFB. And for people who don't know, IFB is like a little headset that's in one ear. And what you end up looking like, and this is why uh, the reaction that you'll hear about, you end up looking like a Secret Service member. So he walks in and he's got his IFB in his ear. And he says to the young man, who's in charge of this suite? Now the young man who's busy drinking a beer, uh, whether he's of age or not, I don't know. But he puts his beer down and says, I don't know. Is there a problem? Rob Stone then just deadpans will you please get the person in charge of this suite? So the, the kid goes off and gets whoever the person is. Now, keep in mind, standing behind Rob Stone is Marisa Du, not saying a word, just looking badass, because that's what Mo does. He's incredibly good-looking, but he's also badass. So now the guy comes back, and Rob Stone proceeds to explain to him that we have just been kicked out of our perched there on our set and would we would they be so kind as to open up their hearts and their home if you will in this suite to let us watch long story short they were wonderful they showed us incredible southern hospitality uh, we took pictures and just had a blast so much so that in the first half Darlington Nagby hit a shot that went over the crossbar one of the older gentlemen in the suite dove and saved it in an incredible feat of soccer if you will High fives, everybody's screaming and yelling. When Joseph Martinez, like, I don't have a dog in the fight, but I'm in their suite. They're all wearing uh, Atlanta United stuff. When Joseph Martinez scored in the first half right in front of us, 
yeah, we had to celebrate. We're screaming and, and high-fiving, and then we went to go back in the halftime when we come back, and we uh, ended up the night after we had done all of our work having a uh, nice beer with them. So thank you very much to those folks in that suite. But it just showed the hospitality down there. The kids knew every word. They knew every player. And it's just another example of this being this incredible soccer hotbed and soccer city and something to be applauded. As I mentioned, we're recording this on Monday. They are having, as we speak, this wonderful parade, the first parade for a professional team since the mid-90s for winning a title down there, and they are celebrating it as if any other professional sports team in Atlanta had won. But it's not any other. It's a special and it's a unique team to that city. And let's be honest, it's special and unique to the league. And I know that there's people out there that are listening, fans. I know that there are general managers. I know that there are media folks out there that are going and they're shaking their heads and saying, okay, it's easy when you're the shiny new toy, but MLS can be brutal and MLS will make you pay and they will party right now. But come next week, it's back to the grind to figure it out because they're going to be gunning for you. Big old target. And you're going to look very, very different going forward. But we had great ratings, highest ratings since, gosh, mid-90s or something like that. Uh, it was on Big Fox. I'm proud of all the work. And so whether it's the guys at the studio, uh, whether it's the guys and girls uh, on the field and upstairs and Katie Witham and John Strong and, and Stuart Holden, what's these, whether it's the incredible men and women behind the scenes uh, that brought you uh, the game and have done it throughout the year, they worked their ass off. And this was a wonderful reward to be able to have the privilege and honor of bringing MLS Cup in that specific environment. And it's something that uh, is not lost on all of us in terms of how lucky we are to be able to do that. So, exclamation point from Atlanta, and everyone's already thinking about uh, next year. If, if rumors are to be believed, this will not happen again next year in that MLS will be over. The season will be over. They are going to change the way that the playoffs work. It will end much earlier, and therefore we won't have that awkward type of pause when the uh, international dates come, which means that we will crown an MLS Cup a champion in sometime, I guess, in uh, in November, which I think is going to be a good thing if this gets passed. It's rumored right now, but it'll be very different, and it'll be higher seed hosting one-off games. Talk about importance. Uh, and talk about relevancy for games, that's going to be fun. And it will make the regular season that much more important to be able to assure that you are hosting those games. All right, next up, Women's World Cup. The draw happened actually right before our MLS Cup uh, final coverage. Women's draw happened. Uh, We brought it to you. I think we talked about Jill Ellis earlier in the pod. I think she's got to be pretty happy with the way that this all came out for the U.S. With USA... Thailand, we're not calling it Thailand, right, or anything like that. You never know about the different uh, pronunciations when it's going out there. I'm going with Thailand, and since I have the microphone, that's what it's going to be. Uh, I've never ever heard anybody call it Thailand, but it's a soccer, and we always have different uh, pronunciations. Chile, and I'm not going to go Chile, okay, and oh, Sweden. So it's an interesting group. It's a completely winnable group, and Let's be honest, no matter who the U.S. drew, it's always a winnable group, given the fact that we're the number one team in the world and the defending World Cup champions. Sweden will be interesting because they knocked us out a couple years ago in the Olympics, and the consternation uh, was palpable from the soccer folks out there. So I think we go through, I think we win the group, uh, no problem. And then if that happens, possibly facing Spain or Germany, okay, well, at some point you got to actually play a game. At some point, you actually have to play a a game against a team that potentially can beat you. 
And I'm not saying that Sweden can't. I think everybody looks to that as uh, the most difficult game of the group. But if and when that happens, Spain or Germany right now, uh, I think it's going to be fun. For, uh, for those that don't know, Group A, B, C, D, E, and F. So we got six groups, four groups, uh, four teams in each group uh, gives you that uh, 24. And you can check that out uh, of all the groups. And we're going to be talking so much more about the Women's World Cup as we get into 2019 and we start ramping up. Uh, for those that want to peek behind the curtain, my World Cup preparation, be it for men's or women's, starts about six months out. So in January, I will start putting together what I call my World Cup Bible, which has as much uh, that I can possibly fit into one of those binders, uh, three-ring binders, one of the big ones that I possibly get. I recognize that it's that whole iceberg theory, but you got to do it. The stuff that you actually see on television will be a small percentage of the stuff that I've actually gone over, but you got to have that base and that foundation in order to get get to the good stuff. It's even more important for me from a women's perspective because at times we're dealing with teams and players that I haven't watched, uh, and many that I don't even know. But this is the gig. This is the job, and I'm um, I'm incredibly fortunate and privileged to be able to do it. So I'll start up in January, and I got a lot of help, a lot of researchers and folks out there that make it a whole lot easier and can distill uh, stuff down. Uh, as we get forward, I'll show you my binder, and as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and then I travel with it when I go to uh, the uh, the tournaments, and oftentimes then it gets thrown out after a while. But you need to have it, and it is something that's essential. And it's, and it's not just the written word. It's podcasts. It's me reading stuff to myself that then when I run, I listen to. So there's a little peek behind the curtain and how – and everybody does it differently. Uh, I'm sure there's others that do it differently. Champions League. Champions League back at it again this week. Seven teams in contention for – for for round in uh, in the 16, right? So there's a lot of different things that can happen. Rather than go through all of them, right now, who are we worried about there? I'm looking over at Alex over there. Tottenham, does Spurs go into the round of 16? And if it doesn't, what does it say about them as a, uh, as a team? The other thing that uh, I think is going to be interesting this week, and I mentioned Stuart Holden earlier, uh, the folks over at uh, at Turner at TNT are going to do this players only broadcast, and so speaking of Spurs, uh, they are playing in Spain against Barcelona, and our good friend and colleague Stuart Holden is going to be broadcasting the game in the booth broadcasting with Steve Nash, which means there is not going to be any type of traditional play by play person in the booth. John Strong right now is listening, just cringing and uh, holding on to the the blanket in tighter and tighter grip. It's going to be okay, my man. Don't you worry. I I was talking to Stuart. It's going to be interesting to see what this is for two reasons. Number one, because it's different. Number two, because it involves, well, two people that I know are incredibly intelligent when it comes to the game, but certainly one that is oftentimes associated with basketball. And, And seeing Steve Nash at this point talk about soccer shouldn't be anything new, but in this capacity in the booth and how they go about it, I'm really going to be interested to see how they how they split it up. Stuart has been very very clear. We were we were talking the other day, uh, having some drinks, and he's been very very clear that he's not there to give you a traditional play by play call. Uh, this is about hopefully, I guess what they're trying to do is two guys that love soccer that talk about soccer, kind of eavesdropping on their conversation. Now, that's that sounds easy, and it's making it sound a whole lot more simpler than it actually is. 
and there will be moments I'm sure that people like and moments that don't like. And Stu is well aware of this. But I like the fact that, and I know that they are a competitor and I wish them well, I like the fact that they're doing something different. I don't have to agree with it all the time and it may or may not work, but I like the fact that they're doing something different. In this sport in the United States, we have yet to develop a tried and true template and tradition. We've based it at times off of what other people have done, either in other sports, or certainly there's a tried and true tradition and template when it comes to the way soccer is done. A lot of folks, whether it's ESPN, whether it's Fox, have tried to do some different things and get away with that. And maybe we've started to have a American template of how to do soccer, but I think it's still a wide open field as to what is right and what isn't or what can be done, which means that it's open for interpretation, it's open for experimentation, and I like that. But you're going to have to take the good with the bad, and not everything that you throw up against the wall is going is going to work. So I'll be interested to see when those two call this game, how it goes, and to see how they grow through a game, because we know that that happens, especially when it's something uh, that you haven't been done before. But lots to be uh, talked about. I'm sure Mossy right now, if he was here instead of uh, somewhere under a table in a bar uh, in England right now would say, yes, but, yes, but, this, 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 this. Well, you're not here, Mossy, so you don't get to do that anymore. And uh, when you get back, you can uh, you can say all that, if you get back, if we let you back into the building. <laughs> all right, Champions League uh, on Tuesday and Wednesday this week, uh, and uh, keep an eye on that Barcelona-Spurs uh, game, not just for the Stu and Steve call, but more importantly, does Tottenham Hotspur make it into the round of 16. A big team, lots of money, lots of high expectations that if they were to bomb out would be no bueno. All right, we've come to the end of our show. And I want to first off thank you for putting up with much more of me than you have ever had in the past. For those that like it, all three of you, including my mom or maybe my mom, I'm not sure, you're welcome. For the rest of you, thank you so much for putting up with me and uh, letting me say a whole lot more and use many, many more words than I have in the past. It was unavoidable. And we thought about getting a guest. I'll be honest, a lot of people are out of town <laughs> couldn't, and couldn't do it. And then we just said, you know what, let's just try it like this and see if, uh, see if this works. It, once again, it may or may not work. In the same way that Steven Stu over there at, uh, in Champions League, it might be a big bomb. This might have been a big bomb. I hope it's not. Uh, my one big thing, from today's podcast. And I talked a little bit about it when we were talking about MLS Cup and how I really enjoyed being in that market and watching these you know, entities and people and media business and politics and watching them scramble and adapt to what is the new reality, which is that Atlanta is a soccer city. And how over the years I, I've seen this done to different levels and to different effects. And those smart people that we have out there, they really do evolve and they add it to their palate. And those other ones, unfortunately, they're dinosaurs. And they, they dig in and they can dig in for a while and they can cling on to that past. But ultimately, by the time they realize, um, usually it's too late. And the, the sports culture has moved on. And not just the sports culture, but the culture of that city, if it is a soccer city, has moved on. Some people care, some people don't. But it also pointed out something that I, I want to try to avoid but also bring attention to is that is that we in the soccer community we we take great ownership 
And it is, as I've said many times, la cosa nostra. But it also means that we can be assholes, all right? And it comes from this, this long history of ridicule and criticism and oftentimes as soccer people, and whether it's the teams, uh, whether it's those of us in the media, whether it's his fans, mostly as his fans, uh, oftentimes just being ignored and not having that type of relevancy that we all crave that we saw on display this weekend in Atlanta. But as I said before, we protect our sport. We got to sometimes also let that insecurity and that protectionism go because it can be, it can be detrimental. You know, we, we have to make room in the tent for, for everybody that wants to be a part of this game. And that's why it was interesting being in Atlanta and seeing that. And you know, we talk about Euro snobs and all that kind of stuff. Well, we can, we can definitely be soccer snobs. And I have talked to people in the media that at times are turned off specifically because of how snobby and uninviting we can be. And we can't do that. We got to, if there are people that want to be involved in soccer in the United States, we got to embrace that and we got to welcome that. And I know at times it can be fun to, to snicker and to sneer when people try to inject themselves into the soccer thing and they might use the wrong jargon or might not have all their facts straight or whatever. But I think we need to resist having that holier than thou moment. Because I do think that when we do that, while it can be fun, it can create an incredible barrier to entry. And that is the last thing that we want or need in our sport. You know, to be exclusionary or elitist in the way that we view ourselves, in the way that we view our game, that does nothing to grow the sport. And while we sit at the end of this crazy week patting ourselves on the back for what we are, we also have to recognize that we got a long way to go. And as much as we have achieved, it can certainly go the other way. It can devolve. And we don't want to do that. And we certainly don't want to do things that could possibly contribute to that. And so respecting and appreciating and embracing every single person that makes the effort to adapt and add soccer to their palate, I think that is essential. And in every city. And I know a lot of people do it. And sometimes we don't. And once again, those of us that have been around a long time, there is a built-up type of resentment. Got to let it go. Got to let it go. We got to put our arms around people and say, I don't, you know, I don't care if you get it right or wrong. I just care that you are making the effort. You're meeting us halfway. The ones that don't want to make any effort, screw them, okay? Because they're, they're not worth your time. And they, as I said, they will die out like dinosaurs. But the ones that do want to meet you halfway and do want to make an effort, God forbid we put up any type of wall or barrier that hinders their entrance into this and, and doesn't allow us to bring them into the tent because the tent is wonderful and the tent is incredibly diverse. And just because you've been around for decades and are immersed in the game doesn't make you any better or more special or more of a soccer fan than someone to, who is coming to it for the first time ever. And going forward, we're going to have a, a holiday type of special, but going into this holiday period, I hope we, we look at what we are 
and what we aren't. And we take great pride in what we are, but we also recognize that in order to continue that, that we make sure that we recognize, respect, and as I said, embrace those that want this game to be part of their lives. And there's a lot of them out there. And there's many more that maybe you don't even know about it right now or you haven't run into. But when you do, put your arm around them and bring them in because it's a, <laughs> it's a hell of a tent and it's a big old party. All right, we come to the end of yet another State of the Union. I want to thank everybody for uh, tuning in each and every week. I want to thank you for putting up with me uh, again. Uh, apologies that Mossy is, is not here. At this point right now, he's probably uh, being incarcerated uh, if his night has progressed the way that we uh, have laid it out. Uh, I will be probably called, collect, I'm sure, uh, and asked to bail him out, which I may or may not do. But regardless, I think he's having a good time, and we look forward to having him back where he belongs in that seat with his wry sense of humor and his incredible intellect when it comes to the game. But as I mentioned before, David Mossy is no more or less a soccer fan than anyone out there. <laughs> All right, we'll talk again next week. Size the day. <laughs>